Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. I'm your host, George Lynch. If you happen to be one of those guys and guys or gals that seem to follow social media during the duck season, then you know of all the theories and complaints about what's going on with the ducks. And most of the posts seem to start with, this is why we're not killing ducks. Well, stay tuned because we actually have this week's guest, one of the top waterfowl authoritative researchers in the country. We are proud to have Doug Osborne from the University of Arkansas. Doug, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Yes, sir. Appreciate y'all having me. I look forward to our conversation. Doug, can you give us a, our listeners uh, your background, your credentials, and, and really your your background and what got you started in this? Uh, I grew up in uh, central, north central Illinois, in a corn belt um, in the land. You know, back in you know, even back in the 80s when CRP, you know, right in the corn belt of the of the Midwest there, and when CRP came in, you know, it just started seeing all these cornfields go into grasslands. And so, you know, it just provided all kinds of hunting opportunity for me growing up on a, on a hog farm and then being close to the Mississippi River. We were 45 minutes away or so. Grew up, you know, dive, hunting diver ducks on, on the Mississippi River. And so... I ended up uh, just kind of falling in love with, the, you know, our field of, of wildlife and natural resources, birds specifically. Um, you know, I never really was a big deer hunter, and now everybody tells me I'm crazy because I didn't grow up deer hunting and all that much and uh, coming out of Illinois. But it's just it was the birds that I was passionate about and still today. And so, you know, grew up hunting, uh, pheasant hunting, quail hunting, and those CRP fields, chasing the ducks and the divers, camasbacks and scop on the on the river. Grew up with Chesapeake Bay Retrievers all my life, and so you know it was good good childhood growing up, hardworking, passionate uh, about what we did on the farm there, and so I guess that hard work ethic sort of carried on with me, and I just always wanted to just push forward and and. Uh, you know, my, my biggest passion was hunting, and so I just continued through with education. Uh, went to Western Illinois University, got an undergraduate a bachelor's degree, and stayed on for a master's degree. Uh, studied water birds, um, uh, common loons specifically up in Minnesota. Uh, come, come out of a master's degree, went down to Carbondale to Southern Illinois University, ended up working on a Ph.D., uh, and grassland songbirds and, and northern bobwhite quail, really focusing on those were the target species that we looked at, but the, but the projects were really focused on land management and NRCS programs and what programs that they had that benefit land management to improve, you know, environmental quality on these lands and then ultimately habitat for, for wildlife. So really during my phd i really kind of started focusing in on sort of land management things that we're doing on the ground that's impacting populations and so finished up my phd in 2010 uh, went to university of tennessee at knoxville for a year and a half where i worked with some more usda nrcs programs specifically easement programs the wetland reserve program uh, and just learn to evaluate, try to develop a, a monitoring program for them. Because really, really what it's about there is we're spending federal taxpayer dollars to put habitat on the ground for wetland water birds and waterfowl, you know. And the data that we had 
to to show if that program was meeting its objectives or not was a little it was limited and so they wanted to ramp up the monitoring on these wrp lands wetland reserve program lands to ensure that we're meeting the the goals of these programs that we that we set out to you know to achieve and the taxpayer dollars was being used effectively um and so that was that was an 18 month gig and then from there uh, i got hired on with the university of arkansas and so i've been i've been down here uh since uh july 2012. so this uh this summer will be 10 years uh for my family uh moved here with my uh, my wife which is also a biologist and uh, my daughter at the time um you know it only been about a year and a half old and so and so here we are you know not knowing when we got here how long we were going to stay and here we are 10 late years later uh doing well and loving it and and uh and so now i you know i'm a professor um I'm a professor of wildlife i just got full promotion to professor here this year uh professor of wildlife management and our research program focuses on mostly game birds. Um, did a couple of long-term five, five-year turkey projects in the state. We finished those up, but, but mostly probably what our program's known for is, is the work that we're doing in waterfowl. And so we've been studying waterfowl for eight or nine years here. And we run a annual banding program uh, that we band during winter. It's sort of non-traditional from what we you know, where we typically ban birds, but we probably get into this conversation later. Um, and then uh, we're tracking birds and looking at behaviors and movements and such uh, using uh, transmitters and, and satellite telemetry. So a lot of, lot of stuff going on in the lab, and I'm sure a bunch of this conversation will get into some of that. But, uh, but anyway, I just, you know, lastly, what I'll say is I just, you know, I just can't do this stuff without the awesome people that work for me and work around me. And so, uh, you know, we're off and running and I, I think we got a, you know, exciting program down here. Well, speaking of that, I mean, first of all, what an extensive background. And I just want to say, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a deer hunter, I'm a, whether I'm a waterfowl hunter and you know, that's my passion, but to take something that's your passion and also make it your life career to give back to what is your passion. I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think that is to, a lot of to be credited and to talk about the, 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 the caliber of people that's with you. You and I met uh, this past November at the World Goose and uh, man, I just knew right away you, you guys were my kind of people and and I had so much respect, but what I was blown away, I mean, we, we met and we got to stay at the, the same, the, the judge's house and, you know, we, we, we had our Euchre tournaments. And I will say you and I were pretty up on the Euchre, but your other two pals there, they needed a little bit more training. But uh, <laughs> I, I was so impressed with the um, what you instilled with those who were underneath you. And I'm just going to tell a little story that, you know, one of the days we decided, and I, and I feel terrible, I cannot remember the refuge there in Maryland, but you guys had it planned to, to go to the the refuge. And one of the gentlemen was Ryan Cam, and then the other one was Ethan. What was Ethan's last name? Ethan Massey. Ethan, that's right. And Ethan, now Ryan mm -hmm. is under you, but Ethan, he's with Ducks Unlimited now, isn't he? That's correct, yes, yes. sir. He was, he was a man, he's, 
did his master's degree with me three or four, well, probably, I guess pushing five years now. And then immediately out of my program, he went in with Ducks Unlimited, but he's in South Carolina now. Well, the cool thing is we ride to this. We're going to go to this refuge before we head to the calling contest. And look, I mean, we were watching all the, the geese and the duck. We were looking for ducks and, and stuff like that. And out of nowhere, and it was a windy day. And out of nowhere, Ethan looks across this little channel canal and over in the brush. And he spots this bird as the car is driving. And I look over and I'm like, where? And Here's this tiny, sure enough, here's this tiny little bird, kingfisher or something like that. Not a kingfisher, but it was, uh, anyway, yeah, it was, yeah. anyway, he had spotted this yeah, bird. Tropical, tropical king bird. Yeah, yeah I mean, that it was, was it. like, and, it's not uh, supposed to be here. They seen it on uh, eBird and somebody said, hey, there's one tropical king bird over on this refuge and you know, thousands of acres of refuge, and we go there, and those guys spot that thing from, you know, 70, 80 yards away. It was pretty incredible. But the thing I, it just impressed me is that these guys that had the same passion as you and, you know, and, and listen to your stories of, you know, of all the students that worked underneath you and the people that are going on and what you're passing on. It was really, really a great story. And, um, I know that uh, you guys, one of the things you mentioned that uh, you you do a lot of the grants and you're busy every year trying to write grants from different programs. Can you elaborate on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, academia, my, I guess I'm hired by the University of Arkansas, but I'm actually a split appointment between a couple of entities in the University of Arkansas. So one's a division of agriculture where my research appointment, so I spend about 70% of my time on research uh, and conducting research takes money and people. And so I'm a grant writer. Uh, I, I, I get research money and uh, apply for, you know, if you, if you land 15 or 20% of the grants that you actually apply for, you're doing well. Uh, you bring that money in, you hire students and research associates and pro postdocs and, other professionals to help you administer that program and get the data collected in the field. You know, I'm, I try to spend a bunch of time still in the field with my students. Cause that's where a lot of my mentoring comes in to play to them, you know, like building them as professionals is involves me being in the field with them and hoping, helping to build their character and their skills and, you know, their, their decision-making process. So, yeah. So the, the grant money is, it's what what it takes for us to, you know, to to do the things we do and hire the people that we hire. Um, you know, and being in in, in academia, my other thirty percent of my appointment is teaching and <clears throat> with the University of Arkansas at Monticello, which is where my office is located. And I teach a few classes, and uh, you know, and the goal really is to bring on students that can work through a master's degree. And because I mean, I'm not going to work forever. Somebody has to replace me someday. Somebody has to replace the wildlife manager at the state, you know, at the state agency, at the federal refuge, you know, and Ducks Unlimited. So it's, we're just working on that next generation of land managers, waterfowl biologists, turkey biologists, whatever that may be. And so um, schools, universities that have active research programs like ours, uh, the students that go through those programs are, way better off in terms of 
you know, in terms of being able to get engaged in the research and the projects and the field work and the hands-on stuff that goes on, uh, you know, get some training and teaching outside the classroom, uh, which is really beneficial to, you know, the students that, that go to these programs. Well, you know, I will say this, a lot of people, the misconception that biologists, you know, they're just, they're more, they're uh, analytical and but you guys, they forget, you guys are huge hunters. I've learned that real quick and, and, and seen that in you guys. And what I'm going to ask you now, being that you guys, you know, are the, the analyticals and analysis and do all the study and data, I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question. I'm sure everybody's waiting for to hear me ask, but what's going on with the ducks? Yeah. <laughs> what ducks? <laughs> well, we got. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's talk yeah. about mallards first. <laughs> the, That's a good the, point. We, you know, we've been studying the mid-continent population of birds, and so we we kind of lump the central flyaway birds in with the Mississippi flyaway birds in terms of harvest management. They're one group, right? And so, yes, central flyaway, Mississippi flyaway have uh, separate regulations right you can harvest an extra mallard in the central flyaway that you can't in mississippi and that all lays out you know that all plays out because of hunting density and all that kind of thing and um but really what's you know overall what we're you know people are like oh the birds shifting west well you know those are obvious hot, hot questions as well and so what it boils down to is that birds populations of waterfowl have to be dynamic and they have to move right so think about the, the perfect situation or not the perfect situation a good example of this is look at last year how dry the prairies were in the year before it was dry uh on the western side of the prairies and it was more you know there was more water on the eastern side so the birds that typically are going to breed in that western prairies had to move they had to go find water so they move to areas that had water. They have to be dynamic. So when birds are migrating through the central Mississippi flyways, they're going to go to water. They have to follow the, you know, they have to follow the habitat and the, and the food resources, right? And so they have to be adaptive uh, to change in the landscape, and that's what they do. And so. If we could do an experiment and have no water in a central flyway next year and the whole Mississippi flyway flooded, we'll see a shift in the birds to the Mississippi flyway. I mean, that's just the nature of the birds is they're trying to live. They're trying to survive through the hunting season. And I mean, birds don't the know the flyway they patterns. You, they don't know the flyway lines, you're saying. They don't know the flyway yeah. borders. They just, it's all on the landscape. It, mm -hmm. it, it dictates the, the travel pattern. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good yeah. point. And so they're just, you know, the what's going on with the ducks is they're just being adaptive to things and to stimuli in their environment, right? So one is habitat and water availability. Wherever the water is, they're going to shift to those. They're adapting to climate. It's stinking been warm. We hadn't really got the huge winter pushes of birds all the way into the south part of the flyways the last few years because... You know, there's more open water, there's no snow cover on the ground. Uh, in certain situations, there's, uh, you know, the people up north are learning how to create habitat better, just like we are down here, right? You can't blame people. Um, and so, 
You know, when there's a, an example of a refuge in, in Illinois, Emaquan National Wildlife Refuge, you know, the area that I used to hunt on the Mississippi River as a kid was swam full of diving ducks in the fall. When they built Emaquan National Wildlife Refuge, uh, I, I personally believe uh, that it changed the flyway. It changed the way all those birds coming down the that Mississippi corridor had moved over into the you know, the Illinois River Valley using that large footprint of water that was on the landscape and then and then using the Illinois River Corridor. So when big pieces of landscape like that are created, you're it's gonna change the way birds are using it. And so they're just what's going on with the waterfowl is they're adapting. They're adapting to habitat, like I said, and then they're also adapting the pressures, right? Uh, hunting pressures, uh, machinery, you know, every time somebody starts up that, you know, UTV, that gator in the morning and drives out to their moist soil field, you know, y'all, you guys ought to know that the, you know, that the ducks know you're coming, Absolutely. you know, when they can hear that boat motor running down the slough, they know you're coming. And so. It's just they're adapting to these noises and realizing that there's danger associated with them. So it's not just the gun. It's everything else that goes along with hunting that these birds are keying in on and changing the way that they move during the day, you know, the way they move during the year uh, just to survive. I got friends down in St. Louis at uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the different hunt clubs, and I've always... I'm a true kind of a believer that the hunt clubs, the hunting pressure is is a greatly, you know, is dictates a, and whether it's deer movement, turkey movement, but definitely on the waterfowl. And you know, they, uh, one of the complaints that I heard down there in the big hunt clubs around St. Louis is that you know the birds, man, they're they're smart. They figure it out. They're they're not flying till right okay. at the end of shooting hours and right after shooting hours, and they're coming. And it's like, well. You guys are putting so much hunting pressure between outfitters and daily hunting pressure, banging those birds mm-hmm. that they've been conditioned. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I tell them, well, maybe some of you guys ought to back off that pressure, maybe not hunt as much and, um, you know, mm-hmm. let, give the birds more time and let them, let them feed a few days and, and get a chance mm-hmm. instead of, but I definitely believe, how much do you believe in, I mean, I'm sure you do, but that the hunting pressure is playing, playing a role in, in our ducks. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. It's it's, it's disturbing uh, to think, though, that in one hand, somebody says, oh, we're losing hunting licenses. We're not selling as many hunting licenses now. There's less people hunting. But then yet we're still complaining about hunting pressure. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know all the statistics on that. I, I do believe we're probably selling more less hunting licenses now. But guys that are passionate about it, like you and I, we're hunting when we can. You know, we're hunting, potentially hunting every day. But you know, uh, it's it's a it's a balancing act. That how do we still have decent hunt, enjoy the resource? You know, where where do we find a balance in 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 the amount of pressure that we are putting on these things? I mean, listen, they're getting shot at from September, whenever the season starts. You know, up, up north all the way to the end of you know end of January. So I mean. By the time they get to the mid-continent, they're have been, you know, they've, they've been hearing the fires and, and shot, shots going off and hunters and it's every day at the same time in the morning, in the morning, in the morning, in the morning. You know, I mean, they just yeah, condition. They're 
you know, they're just conditioned. They're learning, you know, just like when you drive your truck up in the up to the lane to camp and all the turkey land, everything you're hunting is on the left and right of where you're driving, and they go, oh, there's, you know, those, those come turkey hunting today. I don't think I'm on. I don't think I'm on a gobble for a couple of days. Absolutely. You know, it's like. Well, I've I mean, got a they, question they just, they, I, that I've really, I've pondered on this and, and never, you know, we've had, I've talked to guys that you're hunting without in the blind and, you know, we've, we, we, we've had opinions, but uh, when COVID first came, I mean, you know, Canada always got to been an influx of hunters from American hunters going up there. And, you know, I remember years ago, it was, it didn't have the pressure. And then, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, the American pressure up there got started to be more and more. And so then the birds up there were getting more pressure and, and, uh, and I believe that kind of affected as they were moving down and coming through the Dakotas and down south to here. But when COVID came along, all that travel to Canada and the American side, you know, pretty much came to a halt. Um, did that affect, do you think, because um, I'm wondering if the pressure wasn't as great, if the birds migrated later? You, did you see any, any difference in the timing of the migration when COVID came? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't have the data to answer that question, but what I did do is was able to pull band recovery data. You know, you, when you pull, you know, they, they banned the birds up there, and, and then when you just start hitting, sitting all these dots on the locations where these banded birds are showing up, right? And so you, you know, you get a bunch of them across Prairie Canada in, the, in September and October while guys are up there hunting. Well, of course, we couldn't go up there, and the, the local hunting pressure from the U.S., from the states up there slowed down. So all of a sudden, you know, when we couldn't cross the border, that distribution of all those bands, it used to be, uh, you know, it used to be in Canada. Now it's just in the Dakotas. So it just it just hmm. pushed that, you know, it just pushed that pressure to the border, really. And, and folks, you know, North Dakota still lots more hunting licenses. and. And, and in a couple of those years, right, they, the wetlands weren't crazy. The, two, particularly two years ago, I mean, the wetlands were still in only moderate to poor condition, you know, and last year was a full-blown drought. But, I mean, there wasn't a ton of wetlands two years ago either when all those people that are going up there trying to hunt the prairies and the Dakotas. And then, you know, I heard I heard a lot of people talking about how many, how busy and and you know, the prairie wetlands were in, in North Dakota and South Dakota, or well, North Dakota specifically, because you can freelance there, you know? And so uh, guys that usually don't see lots of hunting pressure up there all of a sudden now were because the guys couldn't cross into Canada. So, you know, it, they still are educated. They still got shot at pretty heavy. It just, it took them a minute longer, right? Until they got to, in the Dakotas. But, but anyway, that's, that's the nature of our sport though, right? I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to manage. We're managing these resources so we have this opportunity to hunt. So I don't, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we're doing it to ourselves, right? But we just have to think outside the box and critically about how do we, how do we best manage this resource uh, so that we can have these things and you know sustain these populations. You know, particularly last year. Think about last year. There was the breed production was horrible last year. And they're saying upwards of 25% of the population was, you know, was down because we didn't have, we just didn't have the juveniles in the, pop, and in the population. 25% is huge. Um, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, 25% population wow. was down because of, of reproduction. And that's, I mean, that's big. And then we, we're still going to continue to pound on them. So two poor breeding seasons. And then the February of 20, uh, let's see, 2020, we had a seven inches of ice down here and snow cover for two yeah, weeks. I remember that. It was hard on birds. It killed, it killed a lot of birds. And so two poor reproduction seasons of super harsh winter that killed birds the last year was tough on mallards and even this year even if we have a you know we're getting y'all getting snow up there or is it north of you well we had a little bit of snow but it's been more north of us but it's been a long yeah. winter there's no doubt uh, yeah we yeah, lost the birds good news for the ducks year. right that we're getting that blizzard up in the dakotas up i hate it for the people that got their gardens planted or have been thinking about it but maybe it's too early up there but it's good for the ducks that that snow's coming. Uh, you know, I was in the prairies this past summer, and in fact, about three weeks ago, uh, and got to see a lot of a lot of prairie wetlands that were dry. Um, you know, and, and dry wetlands in the prairies is a good thing. It's nat it's a natural cycle that has to happen because when you dry those out, then you get nutrient cycling going. You have you get uh -huh. new plant communities grow that utilize the nutrients in, the, in those wetlands and, and, uh, and they're more productive. And then when they do flood, they're just more productive for invertebrates. Uh, the plant community is more productive and ultimately better for ducks. And oh. so that wet dry cycle in the prairies is very important, but huge drought when the whole prairies dry all at once, that's, you know, that's, that's when it gets tough on the population. So with the, with the snow up there now, it, you know, it's looking promising that, uh, that the prairies will be a little bit healthier for us, you know, this uh, spring and summer. Well, let me ask you this: If you, if if we have a 25% uh, decrease in population, whether it's over two, you know, two consecutive years, three consecutive years, how long it, 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 with having prime breeding, prime nesting, uh, prime habitat, how long would it take for the duck population to make up that 25%? You think? Yeah. Ooh, I'm definitely not an expert on breeding populations, but that's a good point. Um, you know, I think I'll step back and say that the the harvest management of waterfowl using adaptive harvest management strategies, it's data-driven. There are specific data points that they collect, they put in this model, and it spits out and says, hey, we're going to be in a liberal hunting season again this year, right? So that's already done. Right now, from what I understand, this next hunting season, we're still in liberal. So we're still going to get, you know, 60 days in the, in, the, in the Mississippi flyway, and we're still going to get, you know, four mallards. And, you know, there's nothing that's triggered us to say, hey, we should be real concerned. We need to back down to a moderate season. we got to lose 15 days. That's not happening yet from, from what I understand. And mm -hmm. so – uh, the the harvest management is really focused in on those populations. So when you ask when, how long does it take us to rebound, uh, I one of the metrics that goes into our understanding of population dynamics and, and harvest management is uh, is harvest rate. So what at what rate of you know what proportion of birds are out there being harvested basically, right? And so. The models are are accounting are assuming eight to eleven percent. Mm -hmm. So that's what we think we in the, in this flyway that we're harvesting eight to eleven percent of the mallards. All right, 
you know, so previously before this last season with the drought, my harvest rate from our banding program is only five and a half percent of our birds are getting harvested. So our harvest rate of our birds is lower than what the model will allow for, right? So it says, okay, we can still shoot some more probably safely, but my winter data is not being used in in the assessment of, of harvest. Last year, my harvest rate went up eight and a half percent because there was no juveniles in the population. So wow. They're smoking the adults last year, right? So I had a 3% increase in harvest rate last year of banded birds, which are older, smarter, wiser birds because the juveniles were missing, right? And so with that all said, the banding programs on the breeding grounds is what they use to estimate harvest rates. And as long as harvest rates don't exceed that 11%, you know, for a year or two, uh, you know, it, that's ultimately one of the points that will ultimately trigger us, to, the Fish and Wildlife and the Flyway Councils, to say, hey, we need to back off harvest. So getting back at your question, I don't know how long. Uh, maybe, you know, if, if they're getting six to eight inches of snow up there right now and there was a lot more prairies, with wetlands up there this year i was i was out there with the staff that was out there last year and said oh that wetland that wetland didn't have water last year that wetland didn't have water last. and every time i heard that it's like yes that's a win win for us right it didn't right. have water this year it does so we just maybe it maybe it just takes one bumper crop a year all right That'd be uh, awesome one really good wet uh breeding season uh for that population to rebound um, and a winter that's not harsh and plenty of energy and food and resources along the way to help those populations be strong and healthy and and to survive. So good question. Uh, if it takes two years to get down 25%, maybe maybe a year or two they can get back, 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 back up. up. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be one of those guys that uh, is going to express his opinion. But... Um, I'm telling you what, with especially here in South Central Iowa, and we're off the raft, you know, off the lake here, and I, I think the decline of uh, since I was, I've been here seven, eight years, and the population, is, especially in the last three years, a big decline in turkeys and and, and the pheasants and quail. And my opinion, because I, I drive daily and I know these spots, and and I'm living back, you know, we're kind of secluded back in here, but I say that predation has got to be a huge. Uh, part I know it is in, in the ter- the turkey and the and the pheasant and quail, but is it a big factor with with uh, waterfowl as well? Because no one traps raccoons anymore, and and I'll tell you what the owls are devastating uh, of what they kill around here, and I know skunks are yeah. you know, up. You know you got all this that are eating the eggs, and it's just tough uh, what they got to go through to live. And uh, how much do yeah. you, do you think predation plays a part? Yeah, I, I think definitely predators are, are you know, uh, definitely a key part of, uh, you know, reproduction uh, success, uh, especially, you know, especially on dry years, I think, when the habitat is not available and it condenses birds into good exactly. habitat yeah. and it condenses the predators into those small areas of good habitat, right? I think you're going to have probably increased levels of predation then. Right when you got lots of habitat, lots of wetlands spread out, birds aren't concentrated in 
nesting birds aren't concentrating in big areas, spreads the predators out and makes them work for it a little harder, right? So I think, you know, I think predators is definitely plays an impact on the population, uh, but I think it's habitat that sort of, it's a density of habitat that's available on the land. It really drives that dynamic and how impactful predators can be. So I think in good year, good habitat years, predators probably don't have as big of an impact because there's a one, there's a lot more birds nesting, you know, uh, and they're, you know, and they're, and they have more places to go. Right. And so in poor vet habitat years, there's a lot less birds nesting and the ones are nesting are crammed into smaller areas, easier to target for predators. So I think it's, you know, the predators definitely impact can impact populations, but I but I think it's all driven by habitat, and we can avoid that predator thing, you know, uh, you know, by having better habitat. But in hindsight, you know, in high school, when I was a kid, I I was running I was running trap lines down the ditches before school. I mean, when you can get twenty twenty five dollars for a raccoon, when I was in high school, I'd go run these trap lines before school. Going to class money. muddy, yeah. right? It's like, and then my buddy's dad will take us to to the Quad Cities, you know, on the weekends, every couple of weekends, we'd sell our furs. I mean, I mean, heck, it was awesome, uh, you know, and I think that was, you know, it's just like hunting. To, hunting, we know hunting is an important tool for regulating populations, right? So when deer... Deer herds get too big. They allow extra opportunities to kill extra deer, harvest extra deer, so that we can maintain them at a certain level. There's nothing, there's nearly nothing out there that's promoting, you know, predator control, right? I mean, there's no market for it. You know, some there's some bounties out there, right? I mean, NRCS will give you some money if you harvest the you know, a beaver tail and, you know, for every tail you bring in. I mean, there's some small bounties and stuff out there, but with the market for furs being gone, it's definitely, obviously, you know. Yeah, it goes in cycles. the population of, of predators and then. Definitely goes in cycles, sure. Doug. I would say the society as we go, I believe that there's lost arts. There's, uh, you know, it just changes. It, it From generation to, to generation, it gets lost and, course that you know things what we want to do is easy and like you said you know not too many people want to get up early in the morning and you know so it, it's just what we've been conditioned and and i believe steve Ranella had a great point one on one of his podcasts talking about wild game that we have lost our palate for the wild game just from years of not eating wild game that was just you know we've, we've grown away from that so we our lifestyle growing away from the uh, trapping and all that and i think it takes you know, there's there's a effect on, on, on a lot of different things that go down with it. I'm gonna go yeah. one more thing, and it, we talked about it earlier. You talked that you put transmitters on these on the birds, and what kind of what is it you're looking for? And what kind of data you're collecting on birds that are transmitted? Yeah, I appreciate that. This is this has been kind of our our pet project here the last couple of years. My la I got three or four grad students working on this, and my postdoc Ryan Ashman is also working with transmitter data, but, you know, uh, 10, year, 10, 15 years ago, you know, and we, we really started to learn lots about movements of, of waterfowl, 
uh, you know, these transmitter devices or these little boxes you put on, most of them are getting put on as backpack style with a little harness that goes over, you know, over the keel and one in front of the wing and one behind the wing. And it sort of just ties on like a, like a, like a backpack, but you know, old day transmitter data is us standing out there with like a Yogi antenna and a receiver trying to pick up this frequency of this bird and where it's at. Right. And so it's like, if you detect where he's at, then you got to get three locations so you can kind of triangulate where he's at and figure exactly where that bird is, you know, and it's just so hard to get a lot of data, uh, in the old way of transmitting these birds because you're, you got to have people out on the land. And, and so the advances now in technology is, is pretty incredible to where, you know, these things are just collecting GPS locations uh, on the device uh, and it stores it on board. And then when it passes by a cell tower, you know, it just dumps that data like a text message that we send to our, you know, our buddies. So uh, it's pretty cool that it, it, we can collect a lot more data at higher frequencies of data now uh, in learning the analytical tools now, the statistical and modeling tools that we can use to interpret what this data is telling us is advancing, right? So much advancement in, in the analytical skills that we have now uh, that allows us to, to get at some neat, neat questions. And so the whole really purpose of what we've been doing so far is really focused on winter habitat use. So we've been catching birds here in Arkansas and some in Mississippi and working with some people in Tennessee and Louisiana and the surrounding states in the southeast here and putting transmitters on these birds and just learning about local movement, you know, timing of movement, trying to answer all the questions that people have, like, you know, you know, I, I'm not by the federal sanctuary, but the birds sit there all day. They never move. I can't ever kill one. BS. I don't buy your story because we've tested it you can kill them you got to be a better hunter there you no, go. don't put that on there people will be getting on me but you well, know that's, how, that's how are I, sanctuaries yes sir i agree with that 100 percent. that's what i'm you know you have yeah. to evolve so, yeah, so our so our question really is around sanctuary and how important is it and can we better position sanctuaries around federal and state land exactly so that birds are moving from one to the other and traveling over hunt areas that we can have a chance to harvest them. So how can, what can we learn about birds around sanctuaries so that we can help inform land management and say, hey, if you put another sanctuary or make this little area over here a rest area, birds will learn where that rest area is. They'll travel back and forth and we'll have an opportunity as hunters to, to, to you know, pull a few in to, to our decoy block. So, um, you know, so sanctuary questions and then timing, are they moving at night and everybody's, ah, they're nocturnal, ducks are going nocturnal. Uh, well, they're feeding a lot at night and, uh, in open rice fields down here, you know, we're finding that they're using sanctuary and non-hunt areas a lot during the daytime and at nighttime when, you know, they're going to land right by somebody's you know, right by somebody's duck blind. Uh, so, you know, if you leave your duck blind unattended at nighttime, I promise you the ducks are going to find it. Uh, and then when you start your ranger up in the morning, it'll be like, <laughs> I here agree comes, uh, yeah. yeah, here comes George. I'm going back over here. So, 
you know, so we're just, we're learning about the timing of movement, things that are impacting it. How's the moon cycle, moon phase, moon illumination? How do those things impact how birds move? Um, you know, trying to get hunting pressure. Uh, my buddy in Tennessee is doing a lot of that. They're putting these recording devices up that hears gunshots uh, and trying to relate uh, movements of birds around the frequency and timing and stuff of gunshots. Um, you know, just behavioral stuff, right? How are these birds adapting behaviorally to the pressures that we're giving them on the landscape? And how can we, you know, find sort of middle ground to help improve hunting opportunities and successes, but still also, you know, maintain healthy populations? So, you know, that's just local winter stuff down here. And then, you know, how much of the landscape are they using you know, we're finding, we're really finding that these moist soil, natural moist soil vegetation uh, plots in the winter are deficient down here. Like there's, they're really kind of targeting them and they're not enough on the landscape. And so I'm thinking about the landscape in general and building wetland complexes and what types of habitat and vegetation types may be missing in certain landscapes that may help improve the number of birds this landscape can feed, you know, for the winter and, and those kind of things. And then, uh, you know, lots of stuff we can learn. We're learning too on my, the timing of migration north, usually about my birthday, birds are pretty much making big jumps out of Arkansas up in the central or northern Missouri. Um, and so around the, around the 7th of March, we get, a lot of our transmitter birds that are making big jumps and and uh you know they're well, i can probably tell you where the ice line is right now or freeze line because of where all the transmitters are located and uh, a bunch of them in iowa and, and south dakota and, and so anyway it's telling us a lot about you know migration and uh, timing and all those sorts of things well i think a great idea i'm just it just blew to my mind when you're talking about the transmitter and finding locations that i think when you find the you get information about ducks where they're at in Iowa that you just give your old buddy George a call and say, hey, I located some ducks for you. Go, go, go get them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really, yeah, we'll to make arrangements. there you go. Really, when you're talking about, you know, what's changing, what's going on, one of the, it's probably cliche-ish, but when I, when I talk to guys, you, you said exactly how I feel. The ducks have done a better job to adapting to us than we have to adapting to them. And, um, We've we've kind of made ourselves patternable and and uh, they figured that out, you know, mixing things up. But you know, um, a real quick question because one of the big conversations that uh, that I see, you know, when we're doing the hunting show, especially in the waterfowl industry, uh, is the talking of uh, the speckabellies. You know, the, they're they're moving. In. I know last year here, this past fall, I saw in the fall probably as many speckabellies is as we saw Canada's, right? At least right here where we're at. But the increase of speckabellies is really, you know, it's like making it its way eastern. Um, is it more like you were saying earlier because of the change in the topographical change in the water? Or what do you think or do you see a movement in the speckabellies? Yes, good question. I We actually have done a lot of analysis on white fronts and speckabelly uh movements and so you know historically back in the 70s 60s 70s 80s 
you know, they all used to win, almost the entire population wintered on the coast of Texas and Louisiana, uh, down around Galveston Bay and, you know, Houston area down there. Uh, and so, you know, historically white fronts were using freshwater marshes associated with the coast. And so they're down and they're digging for root tubers. You know, their big bill allows them to sort of dig in the mud. I got some interesting pictures uh, of of some damage of white fronts that are digging in fields that are full of yellow nut sedge. Uh, wow. And they're digging for the root tubers. And it looks like the hogs have got in there. So historically, the birds are on the coast in these freshwater marshes. Well, urban development, we've lost a lot of wetlands down there. Uh, inundation of salt water into those freshwater marshes, change of plant communities, right? So when you change the chemistry of the water, the plants that are living there change. And so the, the, the species that were developing these root tubers that they were looking for were probably declining because of inundation of salt water, because of more storm damage and the more, hurricanes, right? Uh, and those sorts of things. And then, and then lastly, the rice, rice production down in that area lost a lot of acres. There was years of drought where the land, the farmers, the producers couldn't irrigate their rice because there was no water. And then the you know, then they put caps on how much water they could use for irrigation. And so they couldn't do rice anymore. So they had to switch to something like sugarcane or something. So all of a sudden now there's no rice. The freshwater marshes are being degraded, you know, destroyed from salt water and, and the birds left. And so some of our analysis says there was a big shift in the early 1990s. Uh, and then again, in about 2010 was kind of that last straw for white fronts down in Texas where they, on that coastal Texas anyway, where the, where they moved up into the Mississippi Alluvial Valley here in Arkansas. So some, I mean, you talk to some of the folks around Arkansas, they never even seen a white front in this state until about the eighties at some point. Um, and then our analysis shows really big shifts in the, I mean, this is when people ask me, are ducks shifting west? It ain't a shift. White fronts full blown shifted. Like, that's one of the best illustrations of a shift in population. To me, it's like shifting means leaving this area and going to this one, right? right. And so we've seen that shift. It's left that region. Louisiana still gets them in pretty good numbers early in the year. Uh, and then we get a bunch here. But I, you know, I think the theory is that, you know, Louisiana just gets lots of these birds in winter, and we do too in October. You know, get them in October down there. And then hunting season starts, the birds sort of utilize their resource, and then they start trickling north. They don't stay still all winter. They kind of move through the valley, and there's certain regions of the Mississippi Alluvial Valley that hunting's really good for a few weeks or, or, a, or a month or so, and then and all of a sudden, the birds sort of appear to be shifted north. And so, you know, Indiana's getting lots of white fronts now that they never used to ever see as well. When I did my analysis about three years ago now, there was like, I, I could count the number of white fronted banded birds harvested in Indiana on one hand. Mm -hmm. You know, and now they're holding bigger populations, you know, later in the, you know, into the winter, you know, as well, just like you had mentioned. So they're... They're, you know, one, their populations have grown over the few, over, you know, about probably four or five years ago, their populations were probably at an all-time high, at least what we know on record. Uh, and so in the last few years, they've come down a little bit, but, um, but the populations have grown probably beyond what 
the landscape can support in terms of feed, you know, feeding them. Um, and so, you know, they shift around and they move and, you know, in the changing, you know, in the more mild winters and stuff up, up north. And so I, you know, I'm not going to go on vacation in the same spot uh, every winter, you know, when I'm a snowbird and uh, I'm not going to the same spot for three months, you know, so I'm going to go hang out down here and move around. And so I think they're, I think they're just, they're slowly moving north. Um, and so, you know, and the sooner they can move north, um, you know, the more resources, the more sort of they can retain the energy. So an, another part of this is the, uh, the is the dynamics of their body condition. Okay, so they, if they get down here early, they can consume a lot of the waste rice that's on the ground and put on a bunch of fat. Right. And they can hold that fat for a month or so until, in case it gets nasty winter and they can't find any food, then they got extra fat to survive on. Okay, so when they make migrations from the breeding ground south, they make big jumps. I'm talking about leaving the Canadian prairie up there in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and flying clean to Louisiana or Arkansas, not stopping. On their migration north, they don't do that. They can't burn those huge amount of calories. They They have to make small jumps and feed, small jumps and feed, small jumps and feed. They don't want to burn all that energy. Because they need to get their rear end of the breeding ground, which is in the Arctic. And when they get up there, there's no food there. So they're going to get up there and lay a nest on the egg on the ground before there's almost any food for them to eat. So they have to take all this energy from the Mm -hmm. wintering grounds with them. So they can survive those first 15, 20 days until some of that food starts being available for them to consume. Because if they don't get there early enough, right, then... If they don't get there that early, then the growing, then those birds aren't, their chicks aren't big enough to fly and get the heck out of the Arctic before the winter storms come again. And so the, freeze the and season die. for developing those eggs and, and uh, goslings is so short. Hey, Doug, they, how long? They have to be efficient with it. How long can a, a spec, how long can a white fronted goose go without eating? Like I said, when they get to the breeding grounds, there's, there's, often snow on the ground and not, nothing's green yet. You know, there's no nutrition. There's no nitrogen-rich green vegetation growing yet for the most part. And so I suspect they get up there 10, 15 days before they can really eat, and they're working on getting eggs laid on the ground. You know, last two winters ago, and we had, I mean, we had two weeks of hard freeze down here and hard snow and ice. I mean, you know, if the the ice is, that's one thing that, you know, they can sleep on the ice. That's not a big deal if they can get out into the fields and eat, right? But if the field's also covered in, you know, eight inches of snow and ice, then, then they're in trouble. Uh, you know, and we've seen, we've seen, I personally believe the white fronts did a lot better in that crazy ice storm uh, February of 20 than the, than the snow geese did because they had excess fat and liquid wow. reserves on them that, that snow geese don't show in, in their energetic, uh, their dynamics of their, of their body condition. Do you think it's possible? I mean, because and maybe not because they're imprinted, but you were, you know, I hear you saying that as they flying back or making more and more short stops. Of course, in the southern part, you get in in Iowa and the Minnesota and Wisconsin. I mean, you're getting in these areas where definitely more farm belt, more grain fields and stuff like that. Do you think it's possible that mm-hmm. the survival of the fittest that these birds would ever, you know, stop going to the Arctic and learn that if they nested here, like a, a Canada goose, or maybe you know, not far as north, Ooh. but southern Canada, more of the were grain fields that they would survive. 
Mm, interesting. I mean, I would say for snow geese, probably no. White fronts, white fronts are interesting because because snow geese are colonial nesters. You know, they all they right. nest ten foot apart from each other in big, huge colonies. I'm talking maybe three thousand geese on a nest at once in a big, huge circle, and you see it from above. You know, you can walk between all these nests. I mean, they're they're just out of pecking range of each other, you know, and, and the idea behind that is safety in numbers, right? And they can right. keep the Arctic fox and stuff on the edge of those packs and have a better opportunity to spot. But white fronts are individual. They, they'll they just nest in these in these, these tundra wetland uh, marshes and just kind of scatter. They're harder to, to catch in big numbers because, you know, because they're more independent uh, uh, nesters and such. So, I mean, I hope not. Gosh. I mean, they're they're right now they're managed as Arctic Arctic geese, so I'd hate to have to change the name, or hope to, hate to see the name of, uh, of the group of the birds change from Arctic to something else because they move. But I mean, yeah, I mean, look at what Canada geese now, right? Is that they, um, you know, they they're nesting in the city. They're not migrating anymore. They live on the rooftop in chicago and the winter and so it's just it's interesting how sort of the evolutionary change i guess in the behavior of these birds is is, is happening so hopefully we don't see that with white fronts but yeah you know you see that with like you said with canada i mean kentucky tennessee now all having a little bit of their local population that seem to stay back and they learn to adapt and, and start carrying on but um i'll tell you what doug it is awesome having you on it, the information that's what i'm saying i've you know my in my years and my travels that you get to meet a few people and blessed to meet a few people that leave an imprint and respect and you guys were definitely you know i was sitting there and it's just totally blown away with the passion and the knowledge that you guys and the, and the work that you put in and and the students and the, the road that you're paving paving for the people underneath you is it's you know i commend you and have a lot of my respect and and it might tease you pretty much in euchre, but you have my total respect when it comes to what you do. Yeah. And, and uh, is there a website that you have that people can go on to follow these transmitted birds? We were, yeah, we're working on that. Um, we, awesome. we may have it live uh, soon. Uh, we're working on the logistics of, of, of that right now. We, we have some stuff in the works and it's there, but it's not public yet just because we're working on some glitches still. And, and so we hope to have that. But the only thing that really that I have time to keep up with, and I don't even really have that, is, is, uh, is Instagram. Our students made an Instagram page six or eight years ago. Um, and they come to me and say, oh, I want to make this. I said, I don't even know what Instagram is. You know, <laughs> I don't, we don't need nothing like that. And they're like, well, just, just give us a shot. Let us do it once. And, and it's actually become really neat because one of my favorite things, and I commend you all for your podcast and other folks to help us, the scientists, get the information out to the Absolutely. community, yeah. is that the hunting community has always sort of had it been disconnected from the research and the management, right? And so now that the hunting community, I think these kind of opportunities provide us uh, 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 I guess a chance to share information and bring the hunting community more involved in what we're doing and thinking about this. And so a lot of our questions come from this. So I, I commend you all and thank you for bringing me on because one of my favorite things is to be able to disseminate some of this information to the hunting community because we need them 
you know, we need them. How much we need them to report bands, right? I mean, it's important data that I use uh, in, in our analysis. And so, having good relationships with people to me uh, has always been awesome. And so that's why I love going to meetings and the, and the things that we do, like the, the calling contest that we met at, and. Um, just being interactive with people so we can share our knowledge. We can learn other questions and things that people have. And so please uh, have anybody reach out to me. Uh, you know, you can, University of Arkansas Monticello's website, just look up Doug Osborne, Arkansas. You should be able to find me on pretty easy. And we have a, we have that uh, Instagram page where we, we try to share maps and information uh, on our program in the time, you know, is, is throughout the year. And so it's Osborne underscore lab, L-A-B, uh, is where you can sort of follow us on, awesome. on social media. And so that's, that's that. Yes, sir. My friend, well, I appreciate your time and, and sharing your knowledge. And I hope that, uh, I get blessed to have, share a blind with you, uh, once or twice this year and duck, duck blind or whether a turkey blind, whatever, but, uh, I sure appreciate your time and, and uh, folks, you get a chance, check him out on Instagram and, and the University of Arkansas. And if you get a chance, check out our products on legendarygearusa.com. Check out the duck and goose calls. Appreciate that. And remember, always hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide.